from RUF, guys. It's good to see you. Uh, my name is Jeff Lee. I'm the campus minister for RUF. So if we haven't had a chance to meet, uh, hopefully by the end of the night, we will. Uh, super excited to see you tonight. Grateful that you're here. Uh, hope you all had a good spring break. Uh, I always realize, like, coming back from spring break, realize that there's, there's just this sense of the end of the semester is coming. I know that that means that there's exams and tests and projects and papers and all those things I know are weighing on your minds. Uh, and that reality is coming, but because of that, very deeply appreciative of the reality that you're here. Do consider it an honor uh, that you would come, that you would be here tonight, and hope that hope that your time in RUF is a place where uh, a place where you can rest, a place where you can find the hope of the gospel, and be assured of the reality that God's at work. This semester, we're studying the life of Moses, and we have been uh, on this journey through Moses's life of how God used Moses specifically to call his people out of the land of Egypt, which is a place of slavery and a place of uh, just a place of, of hardship and difficulty from a place of slavery into the promised land. But we know that what's, what's said in just a sentence there to go from the land of slavery into the promised land has encompassed a story with all kinds of, of ups and downs and trials and hardships and nuances. Uh, we saw the way in which God calls Moses to be the particular leader of the Israelites uh, how he goes up against Pharaoh and calls Pharaoh to let God's people go, and Pharaoh refuses. And even through the, the bringing of the ten plagues, time and time again, Pharaoh continues to harden his heart and will not let God's people go until finally he relents. And just as we think, okay, God's people are free, they're going to be out of the land of slavery, they're going to be finally delivered into the promised land, they find themselves against the Red Sea, uh, a place that seems like inevitable death is upon them, and yet time and time again, God delivers them. He delivered them through the Red Sea. He delivered them from the Egyptians who were coming behind them. When they found themselves in the wilderness in a place where there was no water to drink, he provided time and time again for them. And so now as we're journeying on this story, we saw the week before spring break uh, that God gave his people the law. He gave them the Ten Commandments specifically as they're leaving Egypt and now they're journeying into the Promised Land. He gave them laws in which uh, which were to govern them on how they are supposed to relate to God, how they relate to one another, how they're supposed to worship. And we saw in all of those laws, there were three different categories, laws that, that, re, uh, that related to the, to the civic government of Israel, the way that the, the, the nation state would, uh, would act. We saw that there were laws that were related to worship, the ceremonial laws of how they were supposed to orchestrate themselves before God as they go to worship sacrificing of animals and temple, uh, you know, the, the, all of the regulations within the temple. And, and there's also the categories of the moral law, like the Ten Commandments that we saw. And so tonight, as we're heading towards the promised land, the Israelites aren't there yet, but God is giving them a picture of what he's going to do once they arrive. And so that's why we're in Exodus chapter 23. And here is God's word for us tonight. It's on the sheet in front of you. If you want to follow along your Bible, that's fine too. Exodus 23 beginning in verse 23. These are the words of the Lord. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God and he will bless your bread and your water and I will take away sickness from among you None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. 
and I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hittites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. These are God's words for us tonight. Let me pray for us. Our Lord and our God, as we uh, come together tonight, we come with expectancy. That only by the power of your spirit who dwells within our hearts, only by the power of your spirit who is in our midst, can we truly be transformed by your word. And so, God, we pray that you do tonight what you can do through your spirit, that you'll soften our hearts and give us ears to hear that we will be a people who are transformed by the power of your word. God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage tonight is more than just a a, a historical curiosity. This is one of the perplexing and vexing questions that a lot of people have when they read the the Old Testament. It's called the Canaanite problem. What do we do with the Canaanites? Several of you have asked me about that even this semester as you read the Old Testament. It's a question that is often asked, what are we to think about God? What are we to think about God's command to to the Israelites? As they go into the promised land, there's going to be all of these people and God is going to rout all of these groups of people. The question gets posed in various ways. Some people will word it like this, and maybe you've heard it. Maybe this has been your question. Some people have worded it this way. They say, when I read the Old Testament, I feel like the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. It feels like the God of the Old Testament is one who's, well, pretty quick to anger and pretty quick to bring destruction and wrath upon the people who are opposed to him. But when I read the New Testament, it feels like he's a God of grace and mercy. How do I reconcile those two pictures? By the way, that's not, a, that's not a belief that I subscribe to. It's not a belief that I think is true. I would argue that the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament, that God hasn't changed yesterday, today, and forever. That actually, if you look at the Old Testament, I would challenge you as you read through the Old Testament, you'll actually find there's numerous places where God's mercy and grace is profoundly evident to his people, even to the people who are his enemies. Can I give you an example? God called Jonah to go and preach to the Ninevites of people who are horrendous. Jonah was so furious about having to go and preach to the Ninevites that he actually ran in the other direction. And that's why God sent a whale, a fish, to go and swallow him and to bring him back and to puke him up on dry ground so that he could go and preach to the Ninevites. And when he saw God's grace and mercy to the Ninevites, Jonah, who was uh, a person who was uh, enraptured with his own sense of ethnicity, was like, God, I'm ready to die because I knew this is what you're going to do you're going to give them grace. You see this concept that the God of grace doesn't show up in the Old Testament just isn't true. And on the, on the other hand, God's wrath and, and, and anger is often poured out, even in the New Testament. Look up later the story of Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts. And you'll see that, well, God's character hasn't changed. And so even if you subscribe to that, if you say, okay, Jeff, I, I can go with you on that. My question still comes, what do we do with the Canaanites? What do we do with this story of God delivering his people into this land and just wiping out the people who 
live there. Here's what I want you to see tonight as we dive into this story. And it's not just because it's a, a, an interesting story. It's not just because it's an interesting sort of apologetic argument. It's because I think this story and this aspect really hits at a very deep level our understanding of who God is and who we are and our proper understanding of the gospel. And so here's what I want you to see tonight. This, this uh, story, this reality of the Canaanites is not an issue uh, primarily concerned with ethnicity and with culture. God's primary concern is the faithfulness of his people. God is primarily concerned for his people to live faithfully to him. This is not a story regarding ethnic privilege or ethnic pride. Here's how we're going to see it. First thing I want you to see tonight. God's judgment is seen in expelling the people. That's the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, all those names that you get to. And you're like, I can't pronounce all those. All those people that are listening at God's judgment is seen in him in the expelling of this people from the land. You see, I think we have a tendency to read a story like this. And you think about the Jebusites and the Hittites and all these people. And we kind of think like these are just a group of like innocent people that are just out there, you know, tending to their farms and raising their family and doing the best they can to survive and just doesn't seem right that God's going to bring the Israelites and bring them in and to just destroy all of these people that live there. But there's actually more going on to the story than that. The Israelites had been in Egypt for hundreds of years, meaning that for hundreds of years, this people group, the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the the Hivites, all of these people have been living in the promised land for the last several hundred years. What has that life looked like? What is it? Who is it that who is the God that they worship? And what does that practice of worship entail? You see, our culture and the culture that you and I have been sort of steeped in for the last essentially your whole life is to believe that, you know what, you as long as you do you, it's okay. As long as you do you and you kind of live your truth, your your sort of personal story is your story. And everybody kind of has their own truth that they can live out. And that really could not be any further from the reality of what God calls us to see in his word, that there are objective categorical realities of right and wrong, of good and evil. And when we lose a sense of those realities, we lose a sense of how to make, how to understand and how to navigate a passage like Exodus chapter 23. Notice what God says to the Israelites as they go into this land, as they're going to be there. Verse 24, he tells them, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You see, the Israelites knew something that you and I, well, is not readily apparent to us of what the worship practices were like among these people. It was common in the ancient world for people to have God's that they worshiped, in particular, gods of fertility. When you're, when you're an agrarian culture, you realize you need your crops to grow and you need your animals to reproduce if you're going to live. You need your family to reproduce if you're going to have a future generation that's going to help take care of you as you get into old age. So it all kind of makes sense that there's a gods of fertility that these people groups would worship. However, it was very common practice among this people group that in their rituals of, of appeasing the gods of fertility, that they would literally sacrifice their own children in order to appease the gods of fertility. That in some way, by sacrificing their own children and giving them up to die, that somehow these gods of fertility would bless their efforts and make their crops grow and make their livestock reproduce. 
It's why there's this seems to be a bizarre reference that God says, I promise you that none of you will miscarry when you go into the land. What's he saying? I'm the God who's going to see to it that you are able to continue to have children and that your land will be fertile because I am the Lord, your God. That's not the way most cultures treat their children. It doesn't take necessarily a Christian understanding to know that we're not supposed to sacrifice our children. Most cultures for history and all of time across most generations and across most uh, religions believe that, well, you should protect your children. You should sacrifice for your children. You should provide for your children because they're the future generations. I was watching a documentary this week. You ever get like lost on one of those YouTube videos? You're like, I, I got to watch this. There was a YouTube video of, of what it life is like in the coldest city in the world. These kids go to school. They don't go to school, I should say, when it drops below minus 55 degrees. Otherwise, they go to school. I'm like, man, these kids are tough. And they're interviewing the dad, and he's talking about what life is like living in the coldest climate in the world and how difficult their life is. And he made this statement, no reference to faith, no reference to Christianity, no reference to any sense of God. What does he say? I'm trying to provide a better life for my kids. As his daughters are at college, and he has a 10-year-old son. See, that's what most cultures do. But as they go into this land, they know that they're going in the midst of a place where these people, part of their religious practice is to sacrifice their children. Even further, it's not just that they sacrifice their children, but actually temple prostitution, ritual sexual practices were part of the foreign or of the worship of the gods that they worshiped in these foreign lands. That there would be men and women who were at the temple, likely children who maybe weren't sacrificed, but who were there, who it was believed that as they went to worship at the temple, and they engaged in sexual activity with the temple prostitutes that the gods that they worship, specifically Baal and Anath, would have more sex in the heavens and therefore bring more fertility onto the land. And so it only makes sense when you start to see some of the history of what's going on in these places that what God is calling the Israelites to do as they go into this land, what is he saying? The time of judgment has finally come. The time of judgment has come and God is using the Israelites as he establishes them in this place to root out a people whose destruction has come upon them. And their destruction is actually meant to be the protection for Israel. Little by little, he says he'll drive them out so that they're faithfully and safely established. But the second thing of this is that God's concern is primarily for Israel's faithfulness. God's concern is for, is for Israel's faithfulness. If the judgment has come upon these people, well, then his concern then is that Israel will be faithful. Notice verse 25. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. What's he saying to them? You shall serve the Lord your God. He goes down to verse 32 and verse 33. You shall drive them out before you. You shall not make a covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your, in your land, uh, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will be a snare to you. In the Hebrew language, they actually don't say to make a covenant with. They actually say to cut a covenant. And it doesn't say to cut a covenant with them. It actually says to cut a covenant to them. It's an interesting word. It's kind of bulky in English, but you can see what he's saying. He's telling his people, the Israelites, don't go to them in order to make a covenant with them so that they can live peacefully among you because their practices are going to be your downfall. They will make you sin against God and their practices, it says, 
will be a snare to you. It will be a trap. Several years ago, I had, um, I found it discovered that I had a couple of rats in my shed. It's a great moment to realize, right? And so I went and bought a couple of traps and I set the traps and I started to notice this phenomenon would happen. Every morning I'd go out to check the traps. The traps would be flipped over. There'd be no bait left in them and there would be no rat. I'm like, what is going on? And so I did what any normal person would do is I start looking this stuff up online and discover there's people that are like deep into this on, on YouTube, which is kind of hilarious in and of itself, but they've set up cameras to record what happens at night. And I started to see video after video of these rats that walk up and they, they're smart. They hit the trap and they hit the trap until it finally snaps shut. And when it snaps shut, they eat the food and they leave. And I started, there's little jokers. So I devised a plan and I nailed these traps together and I had it all set up to where now that I nailed all of these traps to a piece of wood, they wouldn't be able to flip them over. They wouldn't be able to snap it slowly, but surely I caught them both. And I realized, right, those rats are smart, but if they were really smart, they would have left. They were smart for a moment, but it cost them their life. God's telling the Israelites, you think you can handle the sin. You think you can handle the the temptation that you've put yourself with them and you think I can keep it under control. You might be smart for a moment. It will trap you. It will destroy you and it will cost you your life. And so God is sending in front of the Israelites, his angels, but a way to protect them by driving out the forces that would lead to their downfall and to their destruction. You see, this is not a passage that's primarily concerned with race and ethnicity. It's primarily concerned with the faithfulness of the people of God. You can even prove that reality by looking back at the, at the history of Israel, right? What did, what did God tell Abraham back in Genesis? You will be a blessing to the nations. You know, it's not that you'll be a blessing to Israel. You'll be a blessing to the nations. As Joseph is the one who God uses to deliver his people and deliver the Egyptians out of that, that horrible famine, what does God do? But he provides for him a wife who's who? She's an Egyptian. She's not an Israelite. The extension of the kingdom is going beyond the borders of ethnic Israel. Moses himself marries an Ethiopian black lady. This isn't about primarily Israel and ethnic Israel. This is primarily about the faithfulness of God's people and the way in which the kingdom advances and goes forward. You see it when the people of God actually go into the promised land. Who's the first person that rescues them and provides for them? A lady named Rahab, who's a prostitute, who's not Jewish. And by the way, finds herself in the lineage of Jesus. God is concerned with the faithfulness of his people. So then the question we got to ask ourselves is like, how does, how does this, how does this apply to us today? With all of that in the background, how do we respond to a passage like this? Not by taking justice into our own hands and going into the world and trying to destroy what we deem as evil and sinful. Today, one year ago, was whenever a man went into the city of Atlanta and shot up three massage parlors and killed, I think it was eight women because he himself was battling a sexual addiction. And out of his anger, took out his wrath on those places that were places of temptation for him. We can agree with the assessment that this was evil, but we can't agree with the methods that he went forward with to execute justice. That wasn't his place to do that. 
what was his place would have been to turn that anger onto his own sin and to seek a deeper understanding of the truth of the gospel. You see, God's concern in this passage is in order for us to see a mirror and to see ourselves in this story. Because if there's anything that, that we should learn like from this idea of the, of the Canaanites being routed by, the, by God's justice, is the reality that God himself will bring justice. That there will be a day that God judges the world and all of its all of its decision-making and all of its, uh, all that we've done, all that we've thought, all that's ever happened. And I think there's a sense in which we long for that justice to be real. We can look in our, in our own personal stories. We can look at the world around us and see that where, where right and wrong are in conflict, where evil seems to reign, we long for a sense of justice. That story's unfolding on our eyes right now in the story that's happening between Russia and Ukraine. And there's a longing for, will justice finally be restored? The people who are being slaughtered, is there anybody that's going to come to bat for them? We can see it in some of our own stories and some of your own stories of people who've perpetrated all types of abuse. And you're the victims of that abuse. And you've had people and maybe even family members who've covered up for them. And you're longing for, is there a sense of justice? You see, we long for the reality of God's justice to come, but the problem that I think we run into isn't so much that we want justice, is that we get nervous understanding that God's justice means that it's going to come on me. Where do we draw the line? God's standard is perfection. And the justice that he brings ultimately means it'll be my undoing and you're undoing as well. You see, that's the very moment and that's the very place where if that's where you are tonight and if you can see that reality, you're, you're one step from understanding the reality and the hope of the gospel. Because the truth of the gospel is that God's justice that should have been brought on me, God's justice that should be brought on you, He's provided a way in which there's a substitute who takes that punishment on himself is the work of Jesus. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us. He came as our substitute. It's not that God just all of a sudden looks the other way and pretends the sin doesn't happen. No, no, no. The full wrath of God is poured out on his son. It's why we just sang in the song in Christ alone that on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Several years ago, the authors to that hymn were asked, can we change the lyric? We're kind of uncomfortable singing about the wrath of God. Can we change it to say the love of God is magnified? That sounds good, doesn't it? it makes us all feel pretty nice inside. Gives us the Jesus goosebumps, right? On the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Let's not talk about wrath. And the authors of the song said, no, you change that lyric, you change the gospel. What happened at the cross wasn't just that God's love was magnified. Sure, the wrath of God was poured out on Christ that was rightly deserved for you and for me. And his righteousness was rightly applied to you and to me so that we can sing of the grace and the mercy of God. But if that's true of our identity and coming to faith in Christ, if that's true of our identity of who we are as believers, then it also stands to reason then that we would be on guard against all of the sin 
that plagues our heart, all of the worldly thinking and ways that would seek to bring us down, that we would be on guard and not treat, well, to not treat these things as if it's like, I got it under control. I can manage it. I've got it kind of safely in a, in a corner over here. You know what the old, the old theologians used to talk about sin? They would talk about mortifying sin. You know what that means? That means put it to death. Destroy it. Seek to, to put it to death so that it doesn't rear its ugly head. It means to be on guard against the, the, you know, the beliefs that you're surrounded by on the college campus. Uh, the pervasive beliefs, like here, here's a couple that I've, that I've thought about, that I've heard that, you know, I've, I've just I've been doing this for a while. Uh, college is like a four-year, a four-year experience where you can do whatever you want. And at the end of four years, it's like it all just gets magically erased. That's the worst lie you could ever believe. It doesn't just get magically erased. College is a time where you can come and drink and smoke and sleep around and do whatever you want. And it's not like it, it doesn't count. And yet, so many bear the misery and the miserable reality of what those choices are doing to their soul. You see, God's calling us in a passage like this to see for ourselves, to flee from the wrath of God and and cling to the hope of Christ, but then to also be on our guard against the own temptations of our heart and and the ways around us that are so prone to drag us down. Coming back from spring break is such a great opportunity. It's almost like in the spring semester, you've got this moment to kind of catch your breath, get ready for the second half of the spring semester, but it's also a time to recalibrate. It's also an opportunity to kind of reevaluate. I know you're thinking about your studies, uh, you know, about your, your study habits, about the classes you need to catch up on and everything else. It's also a great time to recalibrate and refocus. Where are you in your walk with the Lord? This is a great opportunity, a great moment to refocus your heart and to see the way in which you need to cling to Christ and be on guard against the sin that so easily tempts and clings. The gospel's good news. On the cross, the wrath of God was satisfied. Every sin on him was laid. And it's why we can say, here we stand in his power and in his grace. Let me pray for us. Our Lord and our God, we are so grateful that you are a God of grace and mercy. And even though our sin so easily and so rightly deserve your justice and your punishment, God, we also marvel at the reality that you would send your son to be our redeemer. God, will you go before us uh, today, tonight, this week, uh, help us to see the ways in which we're prone to wander, but also help us see the beauty of what it means to know Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.